Well, let me begin by saying what a pleasure it is to be here <coughs> and to talk about C.S. Lewis. Um, some of you may have been there at the memorial service in Westminster Abbey on Friday. Remember, C.S. Lewis died on the same day as JFK was shot back in November 1963. And there's a memorial stone there to Lewis in Poet's Corner, and on it are inscribed these words. And th these are the final words of an essay he wrote back in 1942 called Is Theology Poetry? Now, the answer to that question all depends on what you mean by theology, what you mean by poetry, but the last sentence is really rather good and it's there for you to see. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And what Lewis is saying in that is that Christianity makes sense of things, that it gives you a, a way of looking at things. And that, that very powerful image, I think, encourages you to think of standing perhaps on a hilltop, looking down at a valley before dawn, the sun gradually rises, the mist is burned off, the light begins to hit the landscape, and you're suddenly able to see things that were always there, but you couldn't see them because it was dark and it was misty. And that really, I think, is one of the things that Lewis wants us to understand. That Christianity is like a lens that brings things into focus. You, you see things more clearly. You see things that otherwise you might have missed. And certainly Lewis would be one of the first to say there are still shadowlands. There are areas that are still slightly dark, that aren't quite in focus. But his point is, you see them more clearly than you otherwise would. What I want to do this evening is talk a bit about how C.S. Lewis came to that position, why it meant so much to him, and try and reflect on what its wider importance is. Now, many of you will know that Lewis uh, was quite an aggressive atheist as a younger man. Uh, he grew up in Belfast back in the 1910s and was telling his best friends that uh, back in the 1910s, science had disproved Christianity, almost like a sort of rather inelegant Richard Dawkins, I think. Uh, but he then uh, fought in the First World War. Uh, Lewis, uh, in effect, fought in northwestern France. And I think that reinforced his atheism. If there is a God, why does God allow this suffering and devastation to take place? So Lewis, I think, really abandoned any belief in God by about 1920. And then went up to Oxford, he studied classics, went on to study English language and literature, got elected to Dawn at Magdalen College in 1925. But throughout this whole period, he was still thinking about the question of faith. And what I think Lewis was beginning to realize was two things. First of all, that atheism didn't actually make quite as much sense as he had thought. I mean, let me give you one example. Uh, Lewis had thought, you know, that since there is no God, we can in effect blame the First World War on God, except if there isn't a God to blame because he's not there, then the blame actually lies with human beings. And they found that to be a very uncomfortable thought. But secondly, I think for Lewis's development, much more important. Lewis found atheism dull, imaginatively dull. It didn't do anything for him. When you read Lewis's diaries from uh, the atheist period, he never sees his atheism as inspirational. It doesn't excite him. It doesn't set his mind on fire. And Lewis, in Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, talked about his, his rather uncritical adherence to what he called a glib 
and shallow rationalism. Whereas imagination said there is a big, wide, exciting world waiting to be discovered, but his rationalism said, no, no, reality is limited to what reason can prove. And for Lewis, that proved to be a very small, and I have to say, a very dull world. And then Lewis's world changed utterly, maybe in 1929, maybe in 1930, when he began to believe in God again. Now, he tells us in Surprise by Joy something of the process by which this happens, but really the key theme is that Lewis felt that the intellectual and imaginative case for God was so good, he just couldn't ignore it. And you may have read that passage in Surprise by Joy, where in effect he says something like this, I, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And he tries to make the point, I, I didn't want to do this, but the evidence forced me in that direction. This is almost like a decision I made against my better judgment, but the evidence forced me to accept it. So Lewis now believed in God, but not yet in Christianity. And what Lewis began to realize was that there was a further journey which had to be made from believing simply in God to in some way believing in God as disclosed in Jesus Christ. And all of this began to fall in place for him during a long walk around the gardens of Morden College, Oxford in September 1931. And Lewis walked around the gardens of a man called Hugo Dyson, who you may not know, but the other one you will know, with J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien began to say to Lewis something like this, you need to understand that Christianity is fundamentally not so much a set of ideas, but a story, a story which generates idea. It's the story of God's dealings with us, and this story captures your imagination, and then it makes you think thoughts, the kind of thoughts you find in the creeds. And by the time Tolkien had finished explaining this, it, the penny had dropped for Lewis. He suddenly realized that Christianity tells a story that makes sense of all the stories that we tell. And more than that, it's something that captures the imagination, that excites you, while at the same time begins to open up certain ways of thinking which prove to be like a lens that brings things into focus. And Lewis began to realize that this way of looking at things was not simply imaginatively exciting, it was also deeply rationally satisfying. So Lewis began this process then of beginning to explore his faith. And having explored his faith, he began to realize Maybe he had a calling. He was an atheist who'd become a Christian and who actually had battled all the arguments along the way and began to realize maybe I was the one who could try and help others who were agnostics or atheists think these things through, enabling them to make the journey that I made from atheism to faith. And so we see Lewis beginning to adopt quite consciously the role of an apologist. The first of his writings like this is The Problem of Pain, which he wrote in 1940. And some of you will have read that book. It is actually quite good, although I, I personally think he over-intellectualizes the issue of suffering. Someone at the BBC read that book, and they thought this could be the man we're looking for. It was the Second World War. Morale was low. They were looking for a voice of faith. 
They wanted someone who could speak clearly with a real sense of vision, who could in effect unpack the Christian faith over the airways and capture the imagination and reassure the British public during a very difficult time. So the issue really was, what did Lewis sound like? They'd read the book, so they knew he could string words together. But what did he actually sound like? Now, any of those who'd heard Lewis lecture at Oxford would answer that question. Lewis packed them into lecture theatres. He had what one of his uh, audience described as a port wine and plum pudding voice. A very rich, resonant voice, very easy to listen to. And Lewis did a microphone test, worked very well. So they asked him to give a series of talks, which did very well. And they asked him to give three more, in which he simply explained what Christianity was, and at the same time tried to make connections between faith and the life of ordinary people. And he did so not as a professional theologian, but simply as a layman, a layman who had thought about these things, who'd given a lot of thought to the way in which you express these things, the way in which you help people to see how Christianity makes sense of things and lights up their individual existence. And as many of you will know, these four series of talks were brought together as mere Christianity. If you're ever wondering why does mere Christianity have these four major sections, it's because they're the original four broadcasts. So what does Lewis say? Well, let me begin to tease out some themes. First of all, Lewis is adamant that Christianity makes sense of things. He once described himself as an empirical theist who arrived at his faith by induction. What does he mean by that? Well, what Lewis means is that Christianity can be thought of as being like a theory which you test against what you observe in the world around you and what you experience within you. And Lewis's point was that Christianity had this remarkable mapping. There was the theory, there was observation and experience, and the theory mapped up. It matched. It made sense of these things. And Lewis, for example, gives a very powerful case study, which we sometimes call his argument from desire. As you've read Mere Christianity, it's in the chapter called Hope. And he says, look, you know, many of us have this deep experience of yearning for something that's really significant, a deep experience of longing that there has to be something really worth having, really worth pursuing, and yet when we pursue it, it's like grasping for smoke. It seems to disappear in front of your eyes. It seems to be permanently elusive, as if it's round the next corner, over the next hill. And Lewis says, how are we to explain this? And he makes the point this does not prove that Christianity is true, but nevertheless, the Christian faith has this remarkable ability to say this all fits in remarkably well. And that's Lewis's language. Christianity is able to fit in what we see around us, what we experience within us, or that image of the lens bringing things into focus. Now, I personally discovered Lewis um, shortly after I became a Christian. I arrived up at Oxford from Belfast in 1971, uh, a very aggressive atheist. In fact, when I read the writings of Richard Dawkins, I have to say I feel all nostalgic because uh, I used to be like that myself. 
And while at Oxford discovered Christianity was rather more exciting than I'd thought, and that atheism actually had quite some problems it had to engage. And to cut a long story short, I ended up becoming a Christian. My friends, realizing I was thinking a lot of things through, said, there's this man called C.S. Lewis. You should read him. And so I still have the first copies of the books by C.S. Lewis I ever purchased because uh, back in those days, buying a book was a big deal. So I wrote the date on which I bought it. And so I can tell you that in uh, 1974, three years after my conversion, I began to read Lewis. And I still read him. He makes sense of things. He says good things. And I think also he says them remarkably well. So there's this whole theme for Lewis that faith makes sense of things. But there's also a lot of very important stuff about how we make sure our culture understands what Christianity actually is. And Lewis realized this during the war years that he had to translate the Christian vocabulary into language that connected up with his culture. And Lewis wrote a lecture of this on this in 1945, in which he said, look, you, you must learn the language of your audience. You've got to learn the words they use. You've got to realize that very often the Christian vocabulary doesn't travel. You need to explain. You need to paraphrase. You need to translate. And you know, he's right. If you read, for example, Romans chapter 5, where Paul is talking about justification, he's very excited about it. But in modern, everyday English, justification means either a reason why I arrived late at work, or what I did with my margins on my word processor. And you know, I want to suggest that those aren't quite what Paul had in mind. But the point that Lewis makes is that the test of having understood yourself is whether you can translate into ordinary English. And I want to suggest to you that maybe one of the reasons that C.S. Lewis is so widely read is not just that he has some very good things to say about the reasonableness of faith, but that he takes the trouble to learn the language of the people he's talking to and is able to use their language rather than his language in trying to open up and explain what the Christian faith is all about. And so Lewis will, in effect, use analogies. He'll use illustrations. He'll tell stories to try and help people to understand what the Christian faith is all about. And indeed, one of Lewis's major themes is that very often we don't see things in the right way. And you could say that in many ways what Lewis is saying, particularly to non-Christians, is look, try stepping into the Christian way of seeing things and realize how much sense that makes. In other words, it's almost like trying on a shirt for size. Does this work? Is it right? And Lewis, I think, there has something very important to say to us. But I think Lewis has other things that need to be said as well. And one of them is the importance of stories. And so I want to reflect with you a little bit about Narnia and why actually Narnia needs to be read by grown-ups and why actually it says some really very good things. I first read Narnia when I was 22, which is a little bit late for these things, but I have to say I, I did get rather a lot out of it. So let me pick up some of these themes and see if they make sense to you. For Lewis, we live in a story-shaped world. And the point he makes is that all of us inhabit 
a story. It's a way of thinking about things. It's a way of understanding who we are, why we're meant to be here. And Lewis tries to make the point, and I think he makes it quite well, that very often we need to challenge our own stories. Are we in the right story? To give you an example, let's imagine that you're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the, the children have got into Narnia, and they're trying to figure out what this place is and what it's all about. And as they listen to people, and animals mainly, tell them about this place, there are two very different stories they hear. One story is, this is the realm of the White Witch. It's hers. This is her kingdom. The other story they hear from Mr. Beaver and others is this is the realm of the noble lion Aslan. He's not here at the moment. The white witch has usurped him, but one day he'll be coming back. And when he comes back, everything will be different. And so children have to figure out which of these stories is right. Because remember, they can't both be right. And so they look at the stories, they think about the storytellers, the people who are telling them these. And they gradually come to realize that the story of Aslan makes sense far more than the other story they're being told. And you know, we have to do that as well. We're being told different stories. We are the random outcome of a random process that means nothing. Or we are the beloved children of God each of whom matters profoundly to God, and there is something each of us can do that will change things in a big way. So Lewis, I think, is making a very important point. But he then moves on, and this, I think, is what's most interesting about Lewis, is his way of thinking about faith. Because what he's saying is that, in many ways, faith is about our decision to allow our stories to become part of this bigger story of God. In effect, it's about realizing that we step into this bigger story and that we fit there. And there is something that we can do in that bigger story, which in effect moves that story on and gives us meaning and also gives us value. And one of Lewis's big themes is that faith is not about destroying individuality or indeed pulling the right rug out from under individual vocation. It's much more about enabling us to do something really important that maybe only we can do by entering into the bigger story of God, becoming part of it, and changing it. And so Lewis in many ways is saying that faith is about a willingness to become part of that bigger story and to work out what it is that we are meant to be doing within that bigger story. And that seems to me to be a very helpful way of thinking, because in effect it affirms our individuality, and at the same time says there is something that you are meant to be doing which is significant and important. And so in that way, I think, Lewis gives a very helpful framework for thinking about things. But Lewis, I think, also reminds us that stories, I think, very often enable us to talk about the Christian faith far more effectively than words. And here, as a theologian, I need to um, confess that I tend to use words and abstract ideas rather more than I should. And actually, Lewis has challenged me very, very much on this. I like talking about ideas like grace and sin. 
but I realize that actually these very often are simply abstract ideas. Lewis brings them to life. Lewis breathes something into them so they become living and real. So let me give you one example from the Chronicles of Narnia. And you, those of you who've read the Chronicles probably already know exactly what I'm going to say, so my apologies if um, this, is, this is terribly predictable. The incident of the undragoning of Eustace. Um, do you remember how the voyage of the dawn treader opens? There was a boy called Eustace Scrubs, or Eustace Clarence Scrubs, and he almost deserved it. You know, it's a rather interesting opening line, but Eustace turns out to be extremely greedy. And Lewis, in a masterful narrative, tells how eventually Eustace is mastered by his greed and eventually turns into a dragon, which, of course, in Nordic myths was a symbol of greed. And Eustace, having made this transformation, realizes he can't get himself out of this. He's trapped. He's become a dragon, and a dragon he will stay. And there's a very powerful description where Eustace scratches away at himself to try and get rid of dragon scales, but they stay. And when he does get them off, there are more beneath, and he's reduced to despair because he can't change his nature. And that's Lewis telling a story, which is basically we are trapped by sin, and we can't break free from it. And then there's this very powerful narrative of Aslan advancing on Eustace with his claws tearing away the skin and then throwing Eustace into this deep well from which Eustace emerges transformed and renewed. It's all about redemption through Christ and cleansing through baptism. Romans 6 kind of way amplified. But my point to you is this. What Lewis is doing is telling a story that captures our imagination and conveys far more effectively than abstract theological analysis what grace and what sin are all about. And in many ways, I think we have to learn from Lewis that very often telling stories is a very powerful way of capturing our imagination. So I think there's a lot we can learn from Narnia, the way in which Lewis characterizes Aslan, for example. Aslan is the noble lion who evokes awe and love and admiration. So very complex things. And one of the points that Rowan William makes in his rather nice book about Narnia is that actually Lewis has captured very, very well what it feels like to be a Christian in the presence of Christ. And that's a hard thing to do. And uh, Rowan Williams thinks that Lewis did it rather well. So there's a lot more I could say about Narnia. But I want, if I may, to move on and come to a moment in Lewis's life when the sense-making ability of Christianity seemed to be called into question. And again, many of you will know the example I'm going to pick up on. Late in life, Lewis married Joy Davidman. Joy Davidman was a complex character, and as I read the narrative, I don't quite share the the narrative you find in the movie Shadowlands, which is in effect love from the word go, in which a kind of feisty New Yorker comes into Lewis's rather drab world and kind of way turns it around. I think it's more complicated than that. And I think that Lewis unquestionably loved Joy Davidman, but I think that the love really began to blossom when he realized she was going to die of cancer. He wrote this very moving letter to Dorothy L. Sayers, just saying, look, it's when you realize that someone is about to be taken away from you, it's then you begin to realize how much they matter to you. 
As many of you will know, Joy Davidman died slowly and painfully from cancer, and it devastated Lewis. And Lewis kept a little diary, and that diary is reproduced along with his thoughts in the book A Grief Observed, published in 1961, quite close to Lewis's own death. And it is a very powerful study of the grieving process. Lewis published it under a pseudonym so that his friends would feel protected. In fact, uh, some of them, uh, realizing that Lewis was going through the grieving process, said, uh, there's a rather good book you could read that might help you. And he gave him copies of A Grief Observed. But here's the point I want to make. In this book, Lewis says, I'm going to set out exactly what I'm feeling and thinking, no matter how awful it is and trace my own journey of thought. And so he begins thinking dark thoughts. Maybe there is no God. Maybe there is a God and he's not nice. And then gradually he moves on till he comes to what I think is the tipping point or the, the turning point of the book. And it's this. He's thinking to himself, why can't I take Joy's pain off her. Why can't I suffer instead of her? That is what any lover wants to do to the beloved. Why can't that be possible? Can I not somehow show my love by taking her suffering upon me? And the tipping point is this. As Lewis reflects and says, actually, now to think of it, wasn't that what was happening on the cross? That in some way, Christ was taking suffering on for me. Now, it doesn't solve everything. It doesn't sort everything out neatly and logically, but it's a turning point. And you can see Lewis beginning to put all the bits back together again as the book moves towards its end. And so the point I want to make is that when we're thinking about suffering, there are actually two slightly different approaches we can take. First of all, how do we make sense of this? Can we kind of fit all the bits together so that they resonate and join up together properly? And that's important. And Lewis actually does that quite well in The Problem of Pain in 1940. But there's a second question, which is actually slightly different, and it's this. How can I cope with suffering? Cope. And that is actually a different question, and Lewis discovered the importance of that in 1960 and 1961. And what I want to say is that in the end, Christianity is not simply a set of ideas that helps us to understand things. It's about a way of living, a way of imagining things. It's something that connects with the deepest levels of our existence because it enables us to cope with suffering, to cope with uncertainty. It's a bit like the image in Psalm 23 of God as the shepherd who journeys with us. So that wherever we go, even if we use the language of the authorized version, if we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us and we are not on our own. So what I'm saying to you is that Lewis really gives us a very rich vision of faith. It makes sense intellectually. And Lewis, I think, is one of the best writers who brings us out clearly and also, I think, expresses it in ordinary English so that we can really sense what he's getting at. But there's also this deep appeal to the imagination. Lewis is saying that once you grasp what God is all about, then it transforms your imagination, it captures you, and it makes you, in effect, say, I wish that this were true. 
And then you realize, thanks to Lewis, that actually it probably is true. And that, I think, is something very important. Some of you may go to Oxford and visit C.S. Lewis's grave. It's there in the parish church of Headington Quarry. Um, they've cleaned it up for the 50th anniversary. And you may notice it's rather forbidding inscription. Men must endure their going hence. Those are very grim lines, but they're not Lewis's lines. His brother placed them on his brother's grave because those were the words by Shakespeare on the family Shakespearean character on the day when Lewis's mother died when he was only nine years old in 1908. They come from King Lear. And so Lewis's brother thought this would be a very powerful way of just pointing out that all of us have to die and making a connection with Lewis's mother. But a few months before he died, Lewis wrote a letter to an American lady talking about his own forthcoming death. He knew he was dying and he was pretty much ready for it. And he used a very different image, which I want to suggest to you both illustrates how good he was, but also invites us to think how we might describe it. He says, look, I imagine we're probably like seeds in the ground, beginning to grow upwards in a world of half-light. And then suddenly we burst through the soil into the light and we look back on the period in the soil as a period of dreaming before we entered into the real world of light and life. And for Lewis, that was what it was all about. This is the place of our exile. It's somewhere where we have lots to do. There's lots of things to be getting on with, but the Christian hope is there, reminding us that one day we shall be in a better place. And for Lewis, a very important point. The vision of heaven is not something that makes us disengage with concern for the world. If anything, it makes us want to engage all the more with this world because with a vision of heaven, and we look at this world, we ask the question, what could we be doing to make this world a better place and more like the heaven to which we believe we are all called? So that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very brief and I fear very inadequate overview of C.S. Lewis. Uh, the key thing I must say is please read C.S. Lewis because he says these things rather better than I ever could. But he does say a lot, I think, to reassure us, but also to challenge us. And I'm very happy now just to...